Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrive, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Hey, welcome everybody to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about value. Value exists only in the customer's mind, and so we talk about all the aspects of how to do that. Today, I've got Jerry Gowan back. Uh, Jerry is an old friend, old colleague, uh, one of the great value sellers that I've ever met. Jerry, welcome. Hi, Mark. Glad to be here. Yeah, so we wanted to talk today about when one of my clients says product or service is more reliable and we find out that they don't understand what that value brings to the customer and so they underprice it or don't sell it as well. Um, so I wanted to today tell a couple of stories and uh, maybe go back and forth telling some stories about reliability uh, so that people can understand that reliability isn't just about lasting longer, therefore dollars per year. No, I mean, uh, you look at the reputations of companies. They launch a product and, you know, it falls on its face. Well, the company's reputation goes down there with it and it's a train wreck. So one of the cars on the train actually derailed the whole train, took down all the other cars with it. Yeah. So is a huge factor in determining the overall value of what you can bring to an application. So there's intrinsic things and, and we can measure those. Um, and, and then there's the nebulous stuff that's out there. Yeah. So let's go through one. It was a, uh, a series of satellites, a constellation of satellites that was, was meant to talk to the space shuttle. So the space shuttle would talk to a one satellite, maybe a second, possibly even a third, and then they would downlink to a ter terrestrial net, uh, network to get back to mission control. And so what happens when one of those satellites goes out or doesn't quite go out and the data slows way down? What happens? And, and how important is keeping those birds talking impeccably reliably? Okay, so... The bird constellation we're, we're talking about is uh, geosynchronous. Being geosynchronous, uh, they're turning at the same rate the Earth is, so they're always staring down at the same point, which is a terrestrial downlink somewhere. The criticality, and there's actually several, when you lose the functionality of one of those birds, uh, it has a huge impact on the criticality of the shuttle's operations itself. You know, the space shuttle had over 900 critical systems on it, and any one of those 900 systems that could fail could be catastrophic to the shuttle. So when we start thinking about what's the impact of uh, an issue, an anomaly on one of those satellites, you're suddenly magnifying the impact of uh, how things are affected upstream and downstream. So what you're saying is that any one of those, many of those 900 critical systems 
could be would have to use that uplink and downlink. And so if those critical systems couldn't communicate, the critical systems had to go in to some sort of um, go into the shell mode and try to struggle along or fail. And both of those sound pretty bad to me. Oh yeah, like I said, that you know, it, it could be catastrophic. The, the shuttle had five computers on it, okay? And those computers were each slaved to specific kinds of tasks. One of them obviously was like the health uh, monitor, if you will, of the actual uh, shuttle and all of its critical components, its critical systems. So, um, boy, you lose that link. It's like <laughs> being able to uh, try and work with a heart attack patient, but you <laughs> hear their heartbeat, okay? I mean... Um, Shuttle, please hold your breath for the next 12 minutes until yeah, you right. with the next yeah. word. So something that might seem like minor glitch, you know, in one place can have an absolute catastrophic effect you know, somewhere upstream or downstream. So yeah. reliability is everything in those kinds of uh, systems. Yeah. So now let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Um, I'm going to tell the story that I always tell. Sorry, everybody who is familiar with listening. Uh, there's a commercial carpet manufacturer whose carpet lasts a little bit longer and the customers and the every basic salesperson knows how to sell dollars per year if the carpet lasts 20 percent longer you sell the carpet for 19 percent more so that's how customers and sellers thought about it but when you last longer there's some other stuff that happens it's the business disruption that happens in the office when you have to replace the carpet if that carpet is underneath your 24 by 7 by 365 customer service department the cost of that business disruption could easily be five, 10, 12 times the price of the carpet. Oh, so yeah. suddenly that 20% longer means a whole lot when it's underneath the right department. And customers understand that when you bring that to their attention and walk them through those costs, but they don't go there by themselves. So a salesperson has to be expert enough in the customer's business to ask that and to guide that through and to sensitize the customer to that issue. You have stories about selling cable that goes into a piece of robotic equipment into a paper mill. And uh, that's, a, that's one I tell a lot, but I'd love to have you tell something about that. That's the PP&I industry. Um, it's pulp and paper industry, PP&I. Okay. So if you look at the, the typical mill, so they take logs, they chew them up into little bits, they put it in a basket of uh, nitric acid that typically is held temperature somewhere between 100 and 125 degrees C. Talking about some pretty nasty stuff here. The cabling I was provided was a gantry interface. So um, a gantry is a structure that's built over top of this uh, nitric acid pool. And there's sensors that are mounted along the gantry that are constantly monitoring uh, what's going on with the pulp as they process it. The high temperatures are such that there's a huge problem with acid gas generation. But you can imagine what nitric acid gas can do to all that equipment, the hardware, 
that's mounted on the gantry, the gantry itself, and it's highly corrosive. There are huge maintenance aspects to keeping those lines up and running. And when there's downtime, there is huge hourly penalties that get charged back to the gantry supplier uh, to get that line back up and running again. So uh, reliability is not only critical for the function of the plant itself, but also can severely impact your bottom line multiple times. You sell this stuff, it could go down five times. And if you're paying these huge costs, and they're huge, Mark, we're we're not talking about a hundred bucks an hour here. You know, we're talking about thousands upon thousands of dollars per hour here. Um, And you keep taking those hits. How do you even price the gantry? Yeah, I had uh, one person say that for a different cable going into a paper mill saying we have a guaranteed performance. If our box, if our unit robot breaks down, we're responsible for $100,000 an hour until we get it fixed. Oh, yeah. Sounds reasonable. And so imagine if you're the cable that's at fault for that or any if you're, you're any component in that box that causes it to go down on an unscheduled downtime. It's not just dollars per foot and it's not just dollars per hour. Once you understand your customer's business and what it actually costs and how severe those costs are, suddenly your reliability, the importance of it gets huge. Tiny differences in reliabilities translate into huge differences uh, in costs and in the customer's business. You have any other stories? Oh, let's see. SI was on the uh, bleeding edge of the development of uh, video endoscopy. I worked with a brilliant scientist. His name's uh, Ken Horry. Ken was the fellow that developed the Sony Betamax system, which was the first video camera and recorder and playback deck of the time before VHS took over and became dominant. So I was working with Ken to figure out how to package components from a Betamax system into the back end of an endoscope. And so uh, when we got the first units built, you have to go through FDA approval. So you had to go through your 510K certification with the FDA before you could sell the product. So there was quite a bit of protocol involved in trying to figure out, okay, how do we do this? So the first problem that we ran into was sterilization. And really, there was no sterilizable tools out there other than mechanical stuff, okay, like saws and hammers and chisels and all those kinds of mundane things. But when you're going to reuse a device and you can't sterilize it, and that typically means something like autoclave or there's some various forms of sterilization techniques out there, uh, peroxide gas, plasma, bleach, 5% bleach. You know, the bleach you buy from a store is one-tenth of 1%. Again, very, very active, very, very caustic. And then a very common method was known as cold soak. And cold soaks typically had various stages of washing and scrubbing. And then you would soak the device in a solution of glutaraldehyde. One of the trade names for that is Cydex. Let me get in the weeds here a little bit with you, but the surface tension of water 
is about 27 dynes per centimeter squared, somewhere in that range. If you ever filled a glass of water to the very top and then took an eyedropper and kept drop by drop adding more water to the glass, you would see the water would actually form a dome over the glass before it would finally start to spill down. And the reason why that occurred is because the water had a relatively high surface tension, okay? When you added the glutaraldehyde to the water, it lowered the surface uh, tension down into like the range of seven to eight dynes instead of 27 dynes. So when they were doing their original studies on cold soak, um, they were using, they were just doing 500 hour soaks uh, in, in water and soapy water, okay? And then along comes this glutaraldehyde requirement. Um, and a lot of this gets mandated down the FDA, right? Um, it goes into your FATP, your first article test plan, and then your uh, acceptance test plan. And the first article test plan is a Riley, you may must survive 500 hours of this and 100 hours of that, et cetera. And so they would design to that criteria. When glutaraldehydes were used in the soak solution, suddenly things that wouldn't leak for 500 hours in a bucket of soapy water would leak within minutes when immersed in Cydex. And so some of our early prototypes that we were doing at the time, they had what they called phantom shorts. The, the equipment was shorting out. And it's very frustrating. I mean, uh, one of the accounts, and I called on several, was in Florida. and I, I would grab some of these uh, prototypes, hop on a plane, fly out to Phoenix where we were building them. And by the time I got to Phoenix and actually got those parts into the factory for analysis, they worked perfect. Everything was nominal, worked fine. I'm very, very, very frustrated. And what we came to find out is the Cydex is highly conductive when it's wet, highly insulative when it's dry. So we were testing dry components that work fabulously, but as soon as you soak them again in Cydex, they'd short out. So that led to a huge engineering effort to understand how to approach near hermeticity in the interconnects we were designing um, so that we would never have a problem with that. So... Reliability then was resistance to all kinds of different chemicals and a changing regime of chemicals that you had to that, that you had to survive. And if you failed and then you redesigned, did you have to start the testing all over again or um, with the, the newly designed components? The FDA has strict control over process and material. You could certify it proof by similarity to other qualified items. Other times it's like, no, you're back to scratch. So the big thing in the beginning was fixing the leak. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we had to get rid of connectors. So I came up with this brilliant idea that we'll, we'll uh, make a paddle card, which is like a small circuit board. We overmolded all of that and um, we did some pretty slick things and and doing some sealings on terminations and stuff like that too. Before that all got over molded, we came up with a very reliable interconnection scheme. 
So that helped us pass many of these cold soak disinfection uh, modalities that uh, various hospitals would use, etc. But the leaks were infantile failure. It wasn't until we cured them that we found out other systemic issues that weren't anticipated, things like flicker, where the screen, yeah. and then to have all the snow and flickering images and everything on the screens while they're performing these least invasive surgical procedures, it, it drove them the, the doctors nuts. So now we had to go back and start, okay, so if we fixed a physical problem, now we have these electrical problems to fix. So it was a, it was a series of iterations, getting back to your question of, did you have to go back to, from scratch? Yes, we did, because there was no similarity to other qualified items, because this is the first one in existence. So it took quite a bit of engineering to, to master all those things, and it took some time to do that. But I guess it was one of those lap in the face of death things, because we're, we're going to be the first one to the market. We're bleeding through the development, as, but once we hit it, we're off to the races. Usually it's first to market, this guy ends up owning the market. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I was just happy that I had a partner, a customer, and they were a partner, okay, that was willing to invest at their end. We invested heavily. Jeez, I bet by the time we were done, we spent easy hundred grand of my employer's money. And I had a requirements contract. In the very beginning, up front, I said, okay, define the product. Tell me how it has to perform. I'll run away and develop the product. I'll bring in X number of prototypes. Typically, it was 10 or 12. And then you run them through your rigors. And so if everything comes to pass and the product performs as advertised, you will give me a contract for a minimum of 2,000, 4,000 units, whatever it may be at upwards of $400 or more per unit. So it, it was a big challenge for my partner, my customer, to have uh, the trust and confidence in, in me and my team stand the heat of the fire. Yep. Once we did that, our credibility went through the roof. That was good news for my employer. I was the last Interconnect supplier to come along. And going back to the story that you told about one of our calls we made together where I sat down in front of the buyer and said, you know, what am I doing here? You know, I'm going to be absolutely the most expensive option you can possibly choose. Where do you perceive the values that I can deliver to you? And so in that discussion, I found out that, well, there were other people in there that were doing some of these interconnects uh, and they failed miserably. So this company and eventually all of them uh, build up these huge inventories of return goods. So as soon as one of these things failed, we get put in a FedEx shipper and sent back at the same time a new or refurbished unit was being sent in to replace it. So they had all these costs associated with maintaining that inventory. Doing, there's these things called uh, MDRs, uh, medical device registry. And anytime any kind of medical device fails, for whatever reason, you have to do an autopsy on it and send that to the FDA. And they collect that data. I mean, you could go out and buy an MDR. You know, it's an annual publication that comes out. And you can believe I use that as some of my market research. 
it's got the most problems, right? <laughs> but uh, so the impact there really was, I helped them get rid of a ton of that return goods inventory. The returns goods department was supposed to be a profit center and it bled these companies dry. Um, I actually was able to turn that around where they became profitable. The profit center that they'd have envisioned originally. Right. And I could, I'll never forget one time um, when I did that, um, once my customer found out that, hey, these, these 12 prototypes work great. Uh, I want to buy 600 more prototypes. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're filing patents and things to that effect, you got your NDAs and everything in place. Um, you're limited to the number of prototypes because you could ship prototypes and not violate your patent process. But once that number exceeds that limit, then you've uh, put yourself you better have your patent. So when, when I finally figured out, when I say I, I, me and my team figured out all of these things, this company was buying thousands of them. And it was all based on uh, the CFO's projection of what the return goods, or a return goods cost would be to the company. Oh, they were they were buying at a rate that mimicked the bad units that they were buying today. Correct. So once they found out, hey, we solved the problem when let's say that was model one, two, three. Well, right behind it is uh, model four, five, six in development. So uh, they weren't smart enough to copy the success of that interconnect solution. For model one, two, three, no, they had to add some more features, right? So it changed the design. But at the end of the day, one of the directors of the company saw me, you know, there working with his team and, and he came into me and he was pretending to be really, really angry with me. <clears throat> and he said, you know what I just did? I signed off the approval to take 2,000 of those units we bought from you and scrap them. We're talking about $900,000 in good parts were scrapped <laughs> because they were betting I was going to fail as bad as all the other guys, right? So, I mean, you know, there's a lot of yeah. stories like this. But, uh, and, and so that's like the first order is that you're, you made them more profitable and you reduced their cost. You turned their spares department back into a profit. But their vice president of sales, all of their sellers, their sales teams, you know, what is the impact on this to the sales team of having a more reliable interconnect, a more reliable and endoscope? Right. So one of it with the same customer, their one of their top salespeople uh, came up to me and he said, Hey, Jerry, way to go. One in a row. <laughs> It was the first time he actually sold a reliable product. That's what is one in a row, man. You know, and he gives me a thumbs up and like, keep up the good work, you know. So the hidden message behind that is by being able to do all these things, the image of that company, their reputation, quality of the product and service that they provided, they blew the market away. Absolutely blew it away. So it made it very easy for their salespeople to sell that because the copycats that were coming on stream is this least invasive surgery product development. It was all kinds of things. Okay. Yeah. Power tools and 
cauterizers, insufflation pumps, you name it. You know, yeah. it's all different equipment being developed out there. You know, these guys are off to the races with that. So Yeah, it, I've always said that if your component or your product or your stuff helps your customer sells more, if you affect their revenue line, there is almost nothing that you can charge that they won't pay. In the beginning. In the beginning. Right. Um, the other thing, one of the things I learned at, I learned at Miller Hyman was even if you don't charge for it, you darn well better make sure you get credit for it. You better talk to the vice president of sales and get him to say publicly in front of his companies, this is how much our sales grew because of our components. Get him to sit, get him to realize it and get it to him to sell it. Maybe they won't charge, maybe you can't charge for it, but now you're locked in at the executive level. They realize what a strategic partner you are. And that's worth something because uh, now you've got a long-term relationship uh, at an executive relationship, oftentimes above the signature level that buys off on your stuff. Absolutely. Right? So you have so much value that the people who don't even sign off on your stuff know about you, care about you, and want you. A colleague of mine called that merchandise your success. Right. And so you can't always charge the price for it, but you better, there's lots of ways that you can get the benefit for it. But this has been a great conversation, Jerry. Uh, any Anything else you wanted to add? How many hours you got, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's good for now, but you know, I, I think uh, reliability should, shouldn't be a, a one-stop shot. Uh, I, I think it should be a series of things, really, because there's so much stuff out there to talk about. Look at John Deere tractors. The farmers are ready to like take arms up against that company because they made it impossible for the farmers to repair their own tractors. And there was functionality built into the design of those things that some things would break faster than others and you could only get a dealer service. So uh, it's created a cottage industry among farmers <laughs> to, <laughs> how to fix these things themselves. But, and I know nothing about tractors, okay? It's just another one of those uh, value slash reliability stories that's out there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So they had a brilliant idea and they tank, they're tanking their business. They, they, there's Komoda out there. There's a bunch of different companies. Yeah, uh, yeah you know, that, that takes me back to the early story. Are you talking about the Tri-Lead fiasco? Or? Maybe. <laughs> okay, so there's another cool one there. Yeah. Go back to the first IBM mainframe computer, the Series 1. Those computers were cabled up with PVC wiring. And IBM suffered from a phenomenon known as high-speed fever. They couldn't get their machines to run at optimal clock speeds because the delays, the time delays, due to the dielectric constant being somewhere between three and six that insulated those wires would slow down the velocity of the propagation, right? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to simplify it for our people. Remember in high school um, physics, you learned that the speed of sound through air through water, through concrete, through wood, through steel is different. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the speed of light through vacuum, through air, and then through the insulation of a coaxial cable, through an insulation of a wire is different. 
and it depends on what the material is. And so <laughs> this PVC you were talking about is pretty slow and the right. speed of light through PVC is really slow. And so it slowed the computer down and we had an insulation that was the fastest in the world. And as a matter of fact, was only instead of half the speed of light or one third of the speed of light in air, we were 20%, 30% below the speed of light in the bullet in air, which was insanely fast. Oh yeah. It allowed in this particular instance with the series one allowed them to triple their clock speeds. Triple you use to build your computer triples the speed of your computer. Correct. And in that industry, speed was everything at the time. Another thing too is the cabinet sizes were huge because they had all these PVC wires running around. Yeah. Back in the day, this guy that you know figured out how to process PTFE has a dielectric constant of 2.1. Uh, we used to call it full density PTFE, if you will, still had a dielectric constant one third of that of the PVC. But we developed a technique that's known as transmission line, where you can take a big conductor and then put a smaller conductor parallel to that, and then another bigger conductor parallel to that. So it's like a three wire set. The two big conductors are grounds. That tiny little one in the middle is the signal. And by adjusting the space between each conductor, you can affect the characteristic impedance. So we can make a 50 ohm cable, 75 ohm, 110, 130 ohm. There's various different chip standards that were out there. They called out, you know, for different impedances, but we could pack a bunch of these signal wires into a very, very narrow, very, very dense cable, which allowed them to reduce the size of their cable troughs, allowed them to reduce the size of their chassis, which lowered the material content of the actual physical build of the machine while improving its throughput 300%. So, and similarary benefits from making this change, you know, that, that, that was a disruptive technology back in the day. You know? Yeah. So uh, really fun stuff. So Jerry, thanks for a great conversation. Once again, um, we could, yes, we could go on and on. Um, but thanks for joining us and thanks for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where value only exists in your customer's head, which means your success is all in your customer's head. Thanks and have a high value day. Well, it ain't easy because value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're going to drive both of you insane. And if you ignore your customer's outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues because you'll be singing those old don't know value blue. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.